The reading for this week is Romans 8, 18 to 25. Romans 8, 18 to 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hoped that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tim. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, there are particular passages, sections of your word that are no more inspired than others, but there are sections that are more jarring in the categories that they give and the way in which they could produce new thoughts, new ideas, and really even new life. And today we're in one of those sections. And so I'm so grateful that we get to be here. And I pray that you would, as we've sung, that you Holy Spirit would come and and fill this place. Um, That you would make this text... Not just clear, but it would be crystal clear. And that we would be empowered to live in a world that's broken. With broken bodies, broken minds, and broken actions. Um, I pray that you would help us to hear from you today. And then to respond to what you're saying. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles. Let's go over to Romans 8. The... Uh, passage that we're in today is another wonderful one. I think, I'm, I think I've said that every week, and uh, it's, just, it's just awesome to be here, isn't it? And uh, just so, so, so privileged, I am so privileged to be able to preach this section to you. I feel the weight of that, the, the burden of that. I so want to get this right, and I, um, I feel the responsibility of that. So as, even as you're listening, if you just be praying for all of us, God, help us to be clear and how you want us to respond and live to this in light of this text. I'm sure you've seen this uh, picture that has sort of taken our culture by storm. This British poster that says, Keep calm and carry on. It was developed in the World War II time period. It was uh, a mantra that around the 1930s, 1939 particularly, the British government was trying to encourage their people in the face of World War II And so they designed three different signs to boost the morale of their people, this being one of them. They used these three signs in the midst of some pretty dark moments. For instance, when England had lost to Germany in battles at Dunkirk, at Greece, in northern Africa, and then when the 
German Air Force relentlessly bombed London cities, destroying over a million homes. There were three signs. Two of them were used extensively. One of them read, Your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution brings us victory. However, they held the sign, keep calm and carry on, in reserve. They printed 2.5 million copies of this poster, and they did not distribute it. They held it. And they were holding it for the moment when the German forces landed in England. That's when this sign was to be released. Its bold message, its display of King George VI crown was meant to be the final message for a country overrun with foreign invaders. It was meant to be a mantra about how do you live when you've been invaded. These signs keep calm and carry on, were never distributed because the Germans never landed in England. And it wasn't until the year 2000 that this sign, keep calm and carry on, was actually discovered. They found it in a old bookstore in northeastern England. And over the last 15 years or so since the discovery, the sign has grown in popularity and also in parody. I'm sure you've seen all kinds of signs. In fact, there's a sign that mocks the French, eat cheese and surrender. There's a sign that advocates revenge. Keep calm and quietly plot revenge. And there's another sign embracing panic. Freak out and just throw stuff. So So my question for you is this. What's your mantra when it comes to suffering? When, When alien forces of hardship and pain and difficulty come onto your shore, what what do you say? If I asked your kids or your grandkids, what's your parents' mantra when they suffer? What is it? Get angry? Get sad? Go back to bed and pull up the covers? Complain? Loudly? Or is, is your mantra in the midst of suffering hopefully more like what we find in Romans 8 verses 18 to 25? You see, in this text we get a pretty clear picture of Paul's mantra in suffering, and we're going to see today how he applies what we've heard previously, in particular, this idea of no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's where this whole conversation began, the first of the year. And we've walked through varying sections about how that position in Christ has sweeping implications, and and now it comes to the matter of suffering. And what What Paul's going to show us here, and I hope you see, is that understanding this gospel vision of Romans 8 gives us categories to understand and embrace suffering with a different mindset. So if you're a follower of Jesus today, I'm going to give you four categories for you to understand suffering so that when hardship or difficulty comes, you you know where to place your feelings and how to think about it. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to let you in on a conversation about how believers in Jesus think about hardships. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, one thing you ought to be thinking of is this. So what's your ground in suffering? What's the point for things that happen in your life? You see, a biblically-minded Christian has a point. We understand what the point is. And the difference between a non-believer and a believer is that this grace thing that's invaded our hearts, it changes not only our eternal destiny and how we handle our sin, but it also changes everything that comes into our life that's hard. 
And it's beautiful. So there are four categories that I want to show you this today. The first is this. It's the category of what you value. Verse 18 really serves as the big idea or the propositional statement for the entire text. And Paul identifies here that there is a weightedness that we need to embrace or a measuring or a valuing in terms of the loss that we experience in our sufferings versus the glory of that which is to be revealed to us. In other words, the idea is is that there's a real loss in suffering. There are things that happen. Life doesn't turn out like we want. It's disappointing. There are hardships. And I'm not denying that those things are hard, but what this text is saying, that in comparison, when you put those on a scale and you weight the glory that is to be revealed to us, the the loss in this column doesn't compare with the glory. This is weightier. That's the point. So once again, this text begins with the word for. It's like Paul's favorite word in Romans 8. He just keeps building on previous statements. That's why he uses the word for, because what he's saying is an implication of everything else that he's said. In verse 17, where we left off last week, he, he, he called followers of Jesus children. He told us that they're heirs of God, that they're fellow heirs with Christ. He talked about being glorified with Jesus, and then he added, provided we suffer with him. So he threw this suffering thing in. And so verses 18 and 25 are meant to explain how, how is suffering a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus? He's suggesting here that suffering is not an anomaly if you're a follower of Jesus. It's to be expected. And this entire passage explains why. Why should you expect some level of suffering? And you've heard me say this before. If you haven't suffered in your lifetime, you're just not old enough. And I don't mean to be depressive or morbid or like, welcome to church. I, what I, what I, what, but, but when you show up in an ER and you get a bad diagnosis, you need to remember this day. Or when your son or daughter makes a really bad decision and you're just grieving, you need to remember this day. Or someone says something awful about you and you are just recoiling from the pain, you need to remember this day. Or you have relationships in your life that you want to be reconciled and they, you try as hard as you can and they just can't be. How do you live with that? Remember this day. This text, this text is for situations like that. That's why I feel the weight of this is because I want to, I want to give you some categories to put your feelings in or some pegs upon which you can hang hard and, and heavy things. This text holds in the midst of the storm. So Paul is arguing here for a particular way of thinking about our sufferings. It's why he uses the word consider. It's um, a word, we've looked at it before in Romans 6 and verse 11, where it says that believers are to consider themselves to be dead to sin and alive to Christ. When we studied that text, I said this is an accountant's favorite spiritual word. So if you're a person who counts money, or you count things, or you love Excel spreadsheets and everything else, this is like your word. It essentially means do the math. The idea is see what the Bible says, look at the world around you, and do the math. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ in Romans 6.11, but in Romans 8.18, it means this. Look at the value of what is coming in the glory of God and look at the sufferings of the world and do the math. See it for what it is. 
The application is this. It's that when we come to moments of suffering, we need to bring our brains, our minds, into the equation. Because our minds and our brains aren't the first thing that come in the door with suffering. What's the first thing that comes in the door? Feelings. You just feel so strong. And I'm not saying that feelings are bad at all, but what I am saying is that your feelings cannot be the loudest voice or the leading influence because to consider means that you have counted something, that you've evaluated something. So many believers live in this category. Their, their mantra is feel it, believe it. It's wrong. That's just a wrong way to live. It's very, very difficult. Or we think this, just because I feel something, it must be true. And one of the greatest helps that you could have, I think, from today and, and just being around this church is to realize that feelings are legitimate and they're strong, but they're not always right. And just because I feel it doesn't mean it's right. And so many, I find many believers who they, they, they come into the Christian life experience and for some reason they just don't know that suffering is a part of the deal. And they have to anticipate it and plan for it and think about it. Because the problem is if you have strong feelings and weak theology, you, you won't know how to endure. And you'll freak out when the bumps of life come. One of my roles with my sons has been to be their assistant basketball coach. And my role is not to look at strategy, but I work with post players. And one of the things you have to teach a post player is this. Anticipate that every single time you go up, you're going to get hit. I'm talking about basketball, by the way. Those of you, what are you talking about? So every time you go up, expect to be hit. So when those guys go up for a layup, I, I push on their backside. I, I bump them. I do everything else. And the first time they're like, hey, what you doing? You're bumping me. And I'm like, look, get used to it. Or go, or go be a guard. You know, one of the two, right? So, uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> but the key to being a good post guy is to expect every time I go up, I'm probably going to get hit. And the fact is, is that many people walk through the Christian life and they don't think that they're going to get hit. And yet Romans 8 just straight up says that there's going to be sufferings, that we're going to be glorified with Him. It says, provided that we suffer with Him. So when we come to sufferings, one of the ways that you would be, I think, greatly helped is to first engage your mind and to think, what do I believe to be true? And then engage the heart. I love this. And then let your feelings come along as it relates to suffering. Now what is Paul considering? I consider, what does he say? The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So he does the math. And he talks about sufferings. So what sufferings is he referring to? Is he referring just to persecutions? Or is he referring to all the sufferings that we deal with in life? And, and I think, based upon um, what you'll see later in the text, and as well the tone of Romans 8, 37 to 39, in terms of neither height nor depth, or things present, things to come, powers, all these things, the idea is not just persecution, which certainly that is in mind. I think it's just the reality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a world that doesn't follow Jesus. So I I think this is a broad concept in terms of sufferings, whether it's hard people or the hatred of Satan or just the hurtful created order 
There's suffering that's all around us. So he says that this suffering is not worthy to be compared with the glory. And that word glory is connected to the word glorified in verse 17. What is, what is this glory that is to be revealed to us? Well, in short, it's the glory of everything that God is. It's related to what God has done. It relates to his plan of redemption. It's what it means to be an heir of Christ in verse 17. That everything that Christ is, we receive. It means that all of the good that he's earned becomes a gift to us. It means the glorification of our bodies. It it means the fulfillment of salvation in and through Jesus. It, It means the beauty of God. I think part of the beauty and the joy of the new heaven and new earth is that you'll be able to see the beauty of God and then a reflection of that beauty is embedded in you so that you see God and you see each other. And it's like, look at this. This manifold display of God's glory. And I'm telling you, when we see that glory, all of the sufferings of this earth, I think we might be just a little, I don't know if embarrassed is the right word, but we'll see the earthly sufferings and how minor they were in comparison to the beauty of what we received. So considering sufferings as unworthy of the future glory is... Not just about what you've lost or what you've been going through. The the real question in suffering is what do you really value? And that's why suffering can be so traumatic. Because it really brings you face to face with what you really value. Because you can sit here, and let's be honest, it's easy to say, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. It's a wonderful song. It's great to be able to say, I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ. And then God wipes something out of your life. That's when it really is hard. When you're face to face with the reality. Do I really believe in you? And am I in this thing for what I get or I'm in this because I get you? So often we settle for a lesser glory or we have such strong feelings for lesser glories Some of you might wrestle with, there's things that happened in my life and I had no choice in the matter. God just gave me this suffering. And frankly, I've had hard suffering in my life that God has given me and I'm grateful that I didn't get a choice. Because if God had said to me, Mark, you can either have this, what you desire, or you can be put on this pathway to pursue greater glory. I'm I'm a little worried as to what I would choose. And so there's huge mystery connected with God's sovereignty. Huge mysteries that we'll talk about more in the next couple weeks. But yet there's also great comfort because if left to myself, I I don't know what I would choose. Thank God I have His Spirit. And He's the one orchestrating the plan. And Paul says we are to consider these sufferings as not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So it's the first category you have to think through. So what do I really value? And that's what suffering does. It, it, it calls to question. So seriously, what do we value? Here's the second category. Not only what do we value, but also where do we live? So what Paul does here, secondly, is he moves away from the individual application of this or the sort of micro focus, and he moves to a macro lens. Like he pulls way back and talks about all of the creation Look at verse 19. For the creation waits 
with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So he first posits in verse 19 that it's not just us who are looking for something in the future, but the entire creation is waiting. The entire creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, meaning that there's some sort of connection between what happens to human beings and what happens to the created order. And that the whole creation is waiting for this day. And and that's a really important thought to think that suffering isn't just personal. That there's there's a bigger global issue that's happening here. That I'm not just waiting, the entire created order is waiting. That's really helpful, I think. Because the temptation in the middle of suffering is to think that it's all about me. We can become so easily self-focused. My praying and my conversations and my hopes and thoughts can all swirl around my pain and and my longing for its relief. And while at one level that's completely understandable and, and justifiable, at the same time, that can really go some bad places. And what this text is reminding us is there's a macro plan that's going on here. That the whole created order is waiting for something more. And this text reminds us something that every person in suffering often needs to be reminded about, but very few people are probably appropriately willing to tell them, and it's this. Look, bro, I know you're suffering. Just remember, it's not all about you. So this is like... Straight up helpful in my life this week. Wednesday morning, I woke up. I was just completely overwhelmed with the sermon, the responsibilities, my schedule. Didn't have enough time. I was just, I woke up in a funk. I mean, the first thought when I woke up was, rats, I'm awake. You ever had that? I wanted to go back to bed, but I didn't have time. There's no way. And I just, I woke up, came downstairs, got my coffee, didn't even say hi to my wife. Just went back upstairs. And she was like, ooh, ooh. You know, she knows what's going on. Told her later, man, I was in a funk this morning. She goes, yeah, you were. I mean, she, you know, she could sense. And, and, and I came to this text. I started studying it. And I'm, I got all this complaining things going on in my mind, all these things. And I come to verse 19, and it says the creation waits with eager longing. And this text just smoked my self-centered, grumbling heart about all the things that I've got to do and all of my problems. And it's like this text says, hello, there's a global issue in play here. Verse 20, it's a really important text. For the creation, notice, was subjected to futility. What that means is the creation had an active or had an acting agent upon it. This is referring to the curse in Genesis chapter 3. It was subjected to futility. So the creation has futility built into its fabric because of the presence of sin in the world. And it says not willingly, meaning the creation didn't subject itself to futility. And then verse 20b explains how that happened. But because of him, who's the him? The him is God. Because of God who subjected it. So what it means is this, the creation has futility built into the system. And that futility, at one level, is because of sin, but listen carefully, but at another level, is because of God. 
So futility is built into the system. The created order didn't build that into itself. God was the one who built in that futility to it because of the presence and the reality of sin. And yet, in the midst of this, it says, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, Verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So there's a number of things you just have to see here. It is this first, that the creation was acted upon. It received futility. Secondly, the acting agent in that was God in response to sin subjected the created order to suffering. So in other words, the hardships, the difficulties, the sufferings connected with a fallen, futile world fall within the parameters of God's sovereign rule. And if you have a problem with that, you need to come to the cross where you have the most despicable act in all of human history, and yet the Father ordained that. And I can't solve all of those tensions. In fact, those things, I just leave them right where they are. And I think they're meant to humble us and to make us go, you are God and I am not. But I am not ready to say, God just wound up the universe, set it in motion, said, all right, good luck with that. We'll see how it turns out. No, no, that's not what God does. He's actively involved. And I can't explain why cancer comes to one and and stillbirth comes to another and infertility comes to somebody else and why marriage problems happen and and adultery takes place and there's no ability to recover from it because the person won't turn around and change and and why children run away and cancer comes to one and not i can't explain all of that but what i can tell you is none of those things squirt outside of god's sovereign rule none of even the devil himself I don't know if that's helpful to you, but it, I think that's what the Bible says. And for me, it's enormously helpful that ultimately behind everything, including suffering, is a good, kind God. And yet, in the midst of this, we have all this futility. We have God ultimately being active in it. And yet, we have this futility. And yet, we also have hope. So notice you have the word futility, and then you have in hope. And you have those two things that are so closely tied together. You have futility and hope, and they're in the exact same verse. They're just a few words apart from one another. And and this is another category, I think, that is so helpful to know the world that you live in, and that things exist in your world that they just are, and they don't always reconcile, like pain and providence, or hard and and, and good intentions. People who do not suffer well are those who do not have these categories well established in their minds. In their minds, either God is good and everything works out according to my plan. God must be good and then so bad things are going to happen to good people. Or if I've worked hard and I've done all these good things and you should bless me and I shouldn't have all these hardships. Those are people who do not suffer well. Because those categories, frankly, I don't think they're biblical. They have an either-or dynamic. And from a biblical view of suffering, a robust view of what is talked about here in Romans 8, is that there are things that exist side by side. You have pain and providence. You have hope and hardship. That hope eclipses suffering, but it doesn't remove it. Now, what is the creation longing for? Look at verse 21. What, do we, what, what's, what is the whole created order longing for? It's the same thing we're hoping for. It, it longs to be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the creation longs for freedom in the same way that we long for freedom. The created order longs 
for the ending of the futility of the world. We long for the end of death. We long for the end of terminal illnesses, of dysfunctional families, of of marital breakups. We, We long for the end of viruses that make us sick or people who put them in our computers. We long for all of the other maladies of the human race to be removed. We we long for the ending of beheadings on YouTube, for the ending of Ebola outbreaks or mass shootings at newspapers or houses that are blown up for money or racism in all its latent forms or people who try to sneak guns on planes or murders that make our city one of the top ten most dangerous cities in the country. We long for the ending of these things. We long for no more deflated footballs and people who cheat and steal it from us. We long for the day when the futility of the world and all of its encompassing realities is gone. So in order for Paul to make this point clear that there is hope and there's pain, he uses a very vivid metaphor in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together. So there's this choir of groanings. And I've given you an example of all the ways that it groans. But lest you think that this groaning is the groaning of something that's leading to death, Paul now uses a very significant metaphor, which is this, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. It's a very important metaphor. And the reason is this, that the groanings on the hospice unit floor signal something different than the groanings on the OB floor. Both are painful, and both could be heard but they signal something very different. The pain of childbirth is a pain, and yet there's hope connected to that pain. And when the baby is born, you even forget about the pain. Or so I've been told. (laughs) I reminded my wife this week that at one of our births, and I don't remember which one it was, it was an early one, I remember very vividly her saying to me in her pain, I'm not doing this ever again, just so you know, right? And we've had more children since then, and I just, I didn't freak out. I'm like, do you mean that? I mean, guys, so when your wife says that in the midst of labor and delivery, just, just mark it down. Just that, maybe that'll come around some other day. But when that joy of that baby comes, the pain is forgotten. There's something beautiful that now has been given to you, and the pain, while significant in the moment, is eclipsed by the beauty of what you've received. And Paul says, that's the metaphor of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The problem is, is that Many believers don't view the sufferings of this world like that. They, they view it like they're in a hospice unit. And the pains and the issues that they're wrestling with, they feel like it's a, it's a downward slide. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And this is leading towards death. And Paul would say, no, 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 this is hard. And yes, it's difficult, but this is leading not to death. It's leading to life. So here's the question. The creation is groaning. Do you hear the groanings? Oh, friends, don't become so accustomed to the reality of this groaning in the world that you no longer hear it. 
Hear the groanings in the news. Hear the groanings in our culture. Hear, hear the groanings of people near you. We, of any person on earth that ought to be aware of the groanings, it ought to be the followers of Jesus. Secondly, in light of this, resist the temptation to think that God is picking on you in suffering. Realize that suffering is a part of the created order. It's a part of the world in which we live. That redemption is coming through Christ and that suffering is just a part of what it means to live in the world. It's not all about you. God's not picking on you. It's it's what all of us are a part of. We live in a broken, pain-filled world that's longing for restoration. Creation groans. Here's the third category. That's where we live. And then what we value, here's the third thing, is what we should feel. What do we feel? And verse 23 tells us that what do we feel? We feel the groanings of this ourselves. It's not just that the creation is groaning, but we are groaning. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves. One of the things that's interesting in this text, really beginning, I think it's in verse 22, the number of times that the word we or the word us is used. There's clearly something that's meant to be collective in nature that's communicated here. For we know that the whole creation is groaning in verse 22 and verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. That little line there, first fruits of the Spirit, is meant to be an encouragement to us that that the world is in the pains of childbirth and yet we have the, the presence of the Spirit within us and that this Spirit is the down payment that indeed this God is going to make good on His promise that one day the redemption of our bodies is going to happen and as a guarantee of that, He's given us the Spirit. So when we sing, Holy Spirit, we welcome You here. We're not just saying, I want You to do something in me. It is that we are signaling that we believe that redemption is real because we have the Spirit within us. Spirit who is the first fruits. We groan inwardly. Notice where that we're, we're groaning inside. We're, we're experiencing the weight of the world in which we live and even of our own sinfulness and how far we have yet to go as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So last week we said that this adoption was something that has already happened, and it has, and yet there is more that is still yet to come. That there is a, a part of our salvation that's still being worked out. And that this redemption of our bodies is linked to the glorification in verse 17 and the end game activity that God will be involved in when he raises the dead, eliminates sin, throws the devil into hell for all of eternity, and the effect of that will be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more illness, no brokenness, no conflict, because there is no sin in the world, and we are finally and ultimately glorified, and yet we're not there yet. But that's what we're longing for, are we not? So how do you groan? You groan as you look at the world and know this is not the way that things should be. You groan when you see things in the world that are just not right, like tornadoes or car pileups or failed adoptions or birth defects. You groan because of earthquakes and national rebellions and political gamesmanship. And you look around and you're just like, this is not the way it's supposed to be. You groan inwardly when you look at yourself. When you know, I'm not the way that I'm supposed to be. I became a pastor in my first church, age 25. I was 
I was optimistic, so hopeful, naive, inexperienced. And now that I'm a little older and I've had a longer history with me and with people like you, I'm, I'm not as hopeful. I'm a little more realistic. I'm not as hopeful. I'm still hopeful, just not as much. And, and the reason is, is because I know how hard I've worked and applied the Scripture in my life, and that progressive sanctification thing, I thought I'd be more mature by the time I got to this age. I thought you'd be more mature by now. I thought we'd all be more mature by now. And I know how hard we have to work to change thinking and change thoughts and what a battle it is. And when I see myself and I see where I need to go and I see all of you, I I groan. And I say, Lord, we can't complete this. We need you to come and fulfill your work on earth. Come. That's the cry. So we groan. We groan inwardly. It's not like we're hopeless. We're not like Eeyore Christians walking around, well, it could be And nor do you have this sort of cavalier attitude like hashtag YOLO. How many of you know what I just said? Okay. For those of you who are clueless, I just said, you only live once. That's what I just said. And for those of you who have the cavalier YOLO mindset of you only live once because, look, I'm just going to spend my chip, so to speak, in this lifetime. You're, you're living a, a half-hearted life. When we fail to feel the groan, we misunderstand suffering And we think it's something that is unusual or unfair. We we have to hear the groaning. And for us to realize this groaning in the earth and groaning within us is not unusual. I want us to be a church of people who are joyful groaners. Not joyful grumblers. I said joyful groaners. Which means that you're happy. But you're hurting. Do you have a category for that? That you are, you are weeping worshipers. That you are godly and yet you're sorrowful. You're happy, but you're sad. And I think that's what God calls us to be and it's what He calls us to feel. Here's the final thing. So how do you respond? So here's what it says, verse 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. What is this hope? This hope is that there's coming a future day of deliverance. And in this hope, we were saved. We, If you're a follower of Jesus, it means that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He's the Son of God, He died on the cross for your sins, you, you came to an end of yourself, you're like, I can't run my own life. And if you're not here as a follower of Jesus, I hope you come to a point where you le- realize straight up, you can't run your life. And when you come to that realization, and you know there's nothing you can do, you run to Christ and you receive Him, the hope in that moment is one day, someday, you're going to come and make everything right. And that hope, you were saved. That's what the text means. And then he says this, Now hope that is seen is not hope. That sounds really obvious, but it's important to remember, because if you see something, you don't hope it, and you already have it. 
That's what he says for who hopes for what he sees. If you already have it, you're not going to hope in it anymore. In other words, in order to have hope, listen to this very carefully, in order to have biblical hope, you can't see all of what you want to see. If you see it, you can't hope in it. You can't have it both ways. So if you want hope, you have to have gaps. Oh, there are so many people who are like, I can't see the point in this. Exactly. That's why you have hope. I don't see how God can work all of this out. Right, that's why you have hope. Because hope is the bridge between what you can see and what you believe. It bridges between the the, the inability to, 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 to link both God's purposes and your pain. And those things just are. And hope bridges the gap in faith where you say, I don't know how this is all going to work out. And I don't know how this is good. But I hope and believe that your word is true. I believe that it is. I choose to believe that it is. He says, but if we hope for what we do not see, and here comes the concluding thought, we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience. You know why this is important? Because the normal reality of following Jesus involves suffering and a bunch of waiting and a lot of patience. Anybody good at patience? Anybody good at waiting? So part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is we're trying to engage in things that are fundamentally unnatural to human beings. And it's one thing when we're talking about traffic. When you're talking about a wayward son or daughter, it's a whole different game. Or cancer, or chemotherapy, or a broken marriage. So the beauty of what this is, is to say, God, I want you to accomplish your purposes in my life, and I don't know how you're going to do that. And so in the midst of uncertainty, I'm just going to, I'm going to patiently wait. I'm not going to be hypocritical. And hypocrisy in this looks like people walking around, and everyone says, how you doing? You're like, great, praise the Lord. And inside, you're falling apart. That's... That's not real church. On the other end are people, how you doing? I'm just mad at God. I'm angry at God. That's not a way to live. And so in between these two ditches is this, this middle ground of hopeful, patient waiting underneath the banner of God's kindness in a world in which we are aliens. In the midst of a world that is terribly broken. Knowing the problem and knowing the plan of God Believers are able to bear up under the heavy and painful hardships that they're experiencing in the world. So what that means is you embrace endurance, you trust that somehow God has a plan, and that somehow, some way, He's going to make it right, and you have yielded the right to know how it all connects. And instead, you just rest knowing, I know you are good, and I know I'm hurting, and those things just are. The mantra of keep calm and carry on is not a great mantra for a follower of Jesus. Instead, I want your mantra to be something like, I'm going to keep trusting the one who keeps me trusting. Something like, this is really hard, but I know it's not bad. Something like, who you are is more important to me than why this is happening. 
So my question for you today is, what is your mantra? What I want us to be is the kind of church where suffering and struggling people can be a part of this body and be encouraged as we groan and as we endure. In a moment, I'm going to have our elders and pastors and our after-service prayers up here. In fact, if that fits you, why don't you come right now? Come up here to the front. I want you to see these folks who have volunteered their time for one express purpose, to be here in this service today. And I want you to understand it, and then I also want to change a little bit about the culture of after our services. Sometimes I think we think that people need to come up front if they're like seriously messed up, they're really stuck, and you're like, oh, I'm not going up there. Who among us isn't groaning today? And you know what our church needs to be? The kind of place where people who are groaning can say, I'm hurting it. It doesn't have to be a huge thing. It can be a small thing. In fact, there are thousands of little groaning things that we need to all just help each other out with and to pray over. And so the vision as we close this service today is that these brothers and sisters who are up here, they're here because they want to help you as you patiently wait and to pray for you. And the vision is that after this service, and hopefully in services to come, there'll be people up here just praying because of the normal everyday groanings in life. And sometimes they're going to be varsity groanings groanings, and sometimes they're going to be elementary groanings, but groanings nonetheless, they are all of them part of the pain of what it means to live in the world. And I want this place, this church, to be a OB ward of the groanings of the childbirth of what is yet to come. And so if you're groaning at any level, you need just to come afterwards and have some of these dear folks just pray over you to help you endure all the way to the end, to keep trusting the one who keeps you trusting. Let's pray. Father, help us now as we respond to you in letting some brothers and sisters pray over us and the groanings that exist within this room are, there's millions of them. So help us to be the kind of church that is a safe place to groan. And when major or minor groanings happen, that we can be helped Because we live in a very beautifully sad world and we need you, Holy Spirit, to help us to keep running all the way to the end. And Father, for those maybe here today who are suffering but they have no hope because they've never come to Christ, would you today kindly draw them, regenerate them, and help them to put their faith in Christ today, even right now. So Lord, thank you that we can groan together. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. These brothers and sisters are here to pray for you today. So come on and let them pray over you.